Our Father, to you we come in the name of your Son, thankful that as we worship together today, we know that we worship the one who is the true and the living God, the one who has given his life for us that we might have life with him forever. We're so grateful, Father, that as we look at the tragedies which are occurring around the world, wars and rumors of wars, it seems, on every corner of the globe, that our faith, our hope is based in the solid rock, in the one who knows the beginning from the ending, in whose hand we are secure. And Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do in and through us in the days ahead and how you're going to do a mighty work within your church all around the world. We're grateful for the messages that we're hearing of the work of God that is going on in the various continents of the world and how the kingdom of God is advancing and people are being won into the kingdom even this very day by the thousands. We're thankful, Lord, that you are the victorious God. We ask you now to bless our hour together here these next few minutes as we study the word. I pray that your spirit will be our guide. Bless the service. Bless all the other classes that are going on concurrently that your name will be exalted and will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Last Sunday, we began to study the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. So I'd like to go there this morning and read that passage again and pick up where we left off last week. Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Although the nation of Israel would not have a king for probably at least 275 years after this particular time, God is here giving them in anticipation of that Guidelines for a righteous monarchy. And these guidelines were what we were looking at last week. And let me just review the first three, which we talked about briefly. First, we're told in this passage that the king was to be an Israelite and that he was to be the one chosen by God himself. Let me read a passage. I didn't look at this one last week, but I think it's appropriate here in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Just a couple of verses there. This, of course, has to do with the life of Samuel. And uh, Samuel, at this point, has been told by God that 
Israel is calling for a king, and it's not because they've rejected you, Samuel, it's because they've rejected me from being king over them. And therefore God tells Samuel to go and anoint the one that God has chosen. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15, we read this. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Now you and I know, of course, that what will happen to Saul eventually. Saul will turn from God and walk in ways that are not in accordance with the will of God. And God knew all that. And yet God chose Saul to be the anointed king over Israel at that particular time. And Saul did deliver Israel from the Philistines. God wanted the king to be his choosing and to be an Israelite so that there would not be an alien ruling over the nation of Israel. An alien king would have less compassion and less understanding of the people. And in addition, he would certainly introduce beliefs and practices that would conflict with Israel's covenant with Yahweh. Israel was unlike any other nation on the surface of this earth in that Israel had a special covenant relationship with God. And anything that violated that covenant relationship was to be avoided and shunned like the plague. And of course, an alien king, unknowing, <laughs> knowing anything, not knowing anything about this covenant or not caring about the covenant, would certainly not live in accordance with the covenant. Secondly, we're told in this passage that the king should not multiply horses to himself. That is, the inference here is he was not to trust in his own ability to build up military power to defend the nation. And of course, not to also acquire horses out of Egypt, which implied not only having diplomatic relations with Egypt, but possibly even creating an alliance with Egypt, which of course would be like creating an alliance with the devil. It was to be God who was the defender of king and country, not what the king could do himself. You may remember that in the story that you read about David, David at one point took a census of the people and God punished David for taking that census. You might say, what's the problem with taking a census? Is there something sinful about taking a census? No, but the reason David was taking the census was to find out how many men he had out there he could count on for military action. In other words, he was depending on the strength of his people and not upon the strength of God. from the king and eventually would harden his heart towards God. He's too busy with his harem to have time for God. Secondly, a harem implies marriage alliances, that marriages will be established for the purposes of allying one Israel with other nations. And last week we read from 1 Kings chapter 13 where we're told that Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh for the express purpose of sealing an alliance between Egypt and Israel. Exactly what God is dealing with here and basically warning them against. Thirdly, monogamy was God's plan from the beginning. Adam and Eve were to be one flesh and that was God's command down through time. And if anybody ought to be the example to the people, it ought to be the king. Why should the king be an exception? He should be the example. God raises up leadership to be an example not to be an exception. Fourthly, if you study through history, 
you discover that jealousies and factions within harems resulted in the downfall of numerous kings down through history and even the destruction of kingdoms. Often harems were so powerful that out of the uh, intricacies of the harem came the next ruler and he was a puppet of the harem. What, what actually would happen is these harems in some cases which num numbered hundreds of women were guarded by eunuchs and these eunuchs eventually almost established uh, like a union and garnered power unto themselves and if you go back and look at Chinese history you discover that the Chinese eunuchs literally dominated the throne in many times in history. And then lastly and specifically mentioned in this passage the numerous foreign wives would introduce pagan gods and these pagan gods would subvert the king and we read from 1 Kings again last week how Solomon built altars to the pagan gods that Israel was forbidden to worship and he built them on the Mount of Olives which is just across the Kedron Valley from Jerusalem itself. Solomon the wise, Solomon the great, this is what he did. And as we know, Solomon, of course, had a thousand women in his harem, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Fourthly, we're told in this passage that the king was not to use his position to garner wealth unto himself because this too would make him feel less dependent on the Lord. As Jesus would say, few rich men would enter the kingdom of heaven was easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not because riches in themselves are sinful. It's because someone who is rich is so busy with his riches, he doesn't have time for God. He is secure in his riches. He doesn't need God. In fact, Jesus said that the church at Laodicea was lukewarm in its commitment to him and therefore only worthy to be spit out by God because they said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. If we ever arrive at a position where we feel like we have need of nothing, we are on very dangerous ground because we are in desperate need of God every moment of every day, no matter what we possess, what position we have, or how much strength we may feel we have because we are, we are absolutely nothing in terms of our relationship with God if God is not dwelling within us. We have less power than an ant walking around on a concrete floor if, if we do not trust and believe in God. And so those who feel that by their might and their power they have built their kingdoms, as Nebuchadnezzar said when he stood on the top of his, of his palace, will end up as he did, eating grass for seven years or worse. The king was responsible to nurture his people, not exploit them. And yet you look through the pages of history and how many times do you find a king who nurtures his people? How many times do you find a truly benevolent monarch? It is a rare thing. What you have are kings who exploit their power, exploit their position, and exploit their people, and, and they extract wealth from their people to the point of literally getting blood out of a turnip. The greed of rulers has brought the downfall of many a nation. And when you add that greed to the lust for power, you have the primary cause for war throughout history. Very few wars are fought for what might be called just purposes. They're almost all fought for greed or lust for power. 
territorial aggrandizement, whatever it is, this is the real cause of most wars. Some of you may be familiar with the um, Bourbon king of France whose name was Louis XIV. Louis XIV uh, came to power in the 1640s and ruled until 1715. And Louis XIV carried the French dynasty to the apogee, the very zenith of its power and wealth and glory. But he did so at an immense cost to the nation. He lived in great luxury and power, and he built the great palace at Versailles, which some of you have witnessed. And the cost of that structure during his time was the equivalent of $100 million. Now, $100 million in the 17th century would go a very, very long ways. And this money was, was poured out on this structure. So grand was it that he could bring all of the major nobles and their wives and families to the palace and have them live there for months on end so they wouldn't get in his hair while he was trying to run the government. And, and then he, he, he just literally poured out the lives of hundreds of thousands of men in the numerous wars which he fought. And almost all the wars were fought to expand French territory and to glorify the French monarchy. This was his goal. In fact, he called himself the Sun King. As the sun shines in its power and brings life to the earth, so Louis XIV radiated power and life to the French people. Very humble man, as you can tell. <laughs> and we have no idea how great France might have become if he had been a wise monarch who had used the wealth properly. Because he will be succeeded by Louis XV, who is not as smart uh, as Louis XIV and is just as wasteful. And uh, as a result of that, when at the end of his reign, he said, after me comes the flood, meaning all hell is going to break loose when I die. And he was succeeded by Louis XVI. And if you know French history, Louis XVI got to test out the guillotine along with his wife. And that was the chaos that came because of this lust for power. And God is saying, Israelite kings are not to go that way. Let me read to you a couple of passages. First uh, Kings chapter 10. First Kings chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. This is speaking of Solomon after he has already become king in Israel. And it says in verse 14, Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 66, 666 talents of gold. By the way, that's roughly equivalent to 20 tons. Beside that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country. And Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold using three mina of uh, gold on each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. You see, he's got so much gold, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he's making shields out of it and hanging it on the walls of his palace in his summer home. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. Twelve, oops, back up, verse 19. And there were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear, and arms on each side of the seat, two lions standing beside the arms, and twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. And all Solomon's, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. 
For the king had ships, had at sea ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram, that is the Phoenicians. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his riches, his gifts, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Now God blessed Solomon because he had asked for wisdom rather than other things, and God allowed him to have riches, but Solomon went totally overboard with this. Uh, I mean, he piled up this wealth, immense wealth, and, and just decorated everything. I mean, can you imagine a throne with six stairs leaning up and, and lions on each step, you know, made out of gold up to this golden overlaid ivory throne with this big golden back. I mean, it was just glittering everywhere. Now, look what the result could be. Second Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20. Begin reading at verse 12. At that time, Barodach Baladan, a son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show these Babylonian representatives. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. And, he's, and he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown to them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left says the Lord. Hezekiah was a godly king, but he was also foolish from time to time. And this was a foolish act on his part. What this does is demonstrate to us that no matter how closely we walk with the Lord, uh, unless we are very much on our guard and prayed up, as some people will use the term, uh, that is, people of prayer, and following the word of the Lord exactly, we can be tripped up too because the enemy will come at us from every different direction as he did to Hezekiah. Seemed like an innocent thing to him. Baradak Baladin sent to him a, a word, a, you know, a comfort card. Sorry, you've been sick. We're really concerned about you. Ha! Huh. All Babylon was concerned about was expanding its power and its authority. And, and so in response, he, his guard is down. So he goes and he shows these representatives everything he has. Why? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he say, I am well because of the might of the Lord my God who is greater than your gods? This is the salvation of our kingdom. No, he goes and shows them all the treasures. Look at all the goodies I have. You know, it's kind of like the guy who takes uh, his friends out to the garage to show him his car, you know, some fancy Ferrari or something, you know. What's a Lamborghini or whatever that funny sounding thing is. Oh, look at this thing I have out here, you know, as if he had made it. All he did was buy the thing, you know. I mean, anybody with enough money can buy something like that. That's no big deal. But that's what he's doing. You know, he's, he's demonstrating, look at all this wealth that I have. You ought to be, think highly of me. And Isaiah basically says from the Lord, you are a fool. 
because it's all going to be gone. It's all going to be gone. It's going to go to Babylon. Then what do you have? Nothing, it says. You have nothing. In fact, it goes on to say that your sons will be servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. So much for your pride. As the Proverbs tell us, pride cometh before a fall. So God is warning the king not to store up treasures for himself, not only because he will then become dependent on that in order to carry out the purposes of his kingdom, but he will be proud. That's one of the reasons rich people have such a hard time, because they're proud of what they have done. We we have a close relative who who basically calls himself a self-made man. I have what I have because I have gotten it. You know, no, no thanks to God for allowing it to happen. Uh, you know, the persons who feel that way don't recognize the fact that the very life they have comes from God, that they can live another day comes from God, that the strength, that the talent, the wisdom, whatever they have comes from God. It is not theirs. It's not mine. It's not ours. Fifthly, we're told in this passage that after four negative statements, basically the king shall not multiply horses and wives and money and so forth, we have a positive final command. And that is that the king is to make a personal copy of the Torah in the presence of the priests. This means he was actually to carry out the function of a scribe and sit there with Levitical priests watching over his shoulder to make sure he doesn't even make one slight mistake with a jot or a tittle. And he is to copy, laboriously copy, the entire law for his own personal book to be guided by. Now remember, there were no printing presses in those days, and every single copy of Scripture was hand-copied by a scribe. So the king had to, in effect, become a a scribe, which meant, of course, for one thing, he needed to be literate. And, And then he had to copy this thing. And after he has copied it, there's no way he could plead ignorance to the Word of God because he had hand-copied every command and every promise. Thus saith the Lord. How many times would he have written that? Many, many times. This, of course, would be the antidote to all the pitfalls to the monarchy that we have talked about here. This would serve, if he would pay attention to the Word of God and live obedience to the Word of God, this would keep him from multiplying wives and multiplying horses and multiplying money and doing these things that God basically forgives, forbids to the king of Israel. Why do we sin? Well, we sin sometimes because we do not pay attention to the Word of God or we ignore it. Now, we can be studying Scripture and still sin, of course, because the enemy blindsides us. We have within us a natural element that wants to do its own thing, you know. I think I've mentioned this before. Years and years ago at Simpson College, there used to be a banner that hung up in front of the chapel. And the banner read, Not I, but Christ. And the eye showed somebody standing there like this, you know. And then Christ was all bent over, you know, in a, the sea. The, a person was superimposed on the sea in a bowing position, you know. So not I, but Christ, implying, of course, submission to him. And, and that would provide uh, a successful life. And so it would be for the king of Israel. Let me read uh, another passage from 2 Kings chapter 22 beginning at verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. (laughs) I mean, this is really almost humorous. 
Here's the high priest saying, I've discovered the Bible. It's kind of like the preacher comes here. You know what I found in the back room of the church? A Bible. <laughs> and Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan to read it. Verse 9, And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was in the house, found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. In other words, the house of the Lord was in bad shape. So Josiah had said, I want the house of the Lord put in good shape. So go get the money that's been put in the treasury and give it to the workmen to rebuild the house of the Lord. So that's what the scenario is here. Verse 10, Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And it came about when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that was written concerning us. What this passage tells to us is that not only had the word of the Lord been forgotten by the high priest, but the kings were no longer making copies for themselves. Because Josiah had never even seen this book before or heard its words. But he was a man who wanted God's will. And so when he heard the word of the Lord, he says, Whoa, we have blown it. Because if this is what God has said, we have not been doing it. We are in deep trouble. And so he tears his clothes and he leads the people into a revival. <laughs> See, God raised up this man. And it's sort of maybe parallel to today to some churches that are so liberal that they have forgotten what the Bible is. And yet God can raise up people even there who will come to a belief in him and will follow him and suddenly discover the truth of God's word. And, and, and that is the situation. This is what God commanded. Had they obeyed it? Surely hadn't been obeying it by the time of Josiah. And as a result, it was an eye-opener for him. And so it was a very, very important command that God gave concerning the king of Israel. Right, let's move now to the next passage that I think is a noteful, noteworthy for us to look at this morning. And this is in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 9. Verse 9, And when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or is a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord. For those nations which you shall dispossess Listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. In this particular passage of Scripture, God clearly lists the religious practices of the Canaanites 
that the Israelites were not in any way to imitate or become associated with. God's people are to trust Him fully and are to walk in obedience to Him. There is no other option. There is no hedging of one's bets. Back in the 17th century in China, the Portuguese had made their first contact with China in the 16th century. And towards the end of the 16th century, uh, one of the great Catholic missionaries, a man by the name of Matteo Ricci, had come with other Jesuits and had begun to introduce Roman Catholicism into China. And by the early 17th century, there were nearly 100,000 who had come to the Catholic version of Christianity. But later on, when China went through a change of dynasties, a new dynasty became rather upset with this particular religion being in the country. But nothing was really happening until word finally came to the Pope that the Chinese Christians were syncretistic in their faith. That is, they were Catholic on the outside, but inside they were still practicing their old ways because the Jesuits felt, hey, it's better to at least get them partway than not any way at all. And so they were allowing the Chinese to continue their ancestor worship and other things that were considered to be Chinese. And so they uh, would just kind of put a Catholic veneer over their normal practice. Well, the Pope finally told the Jesuits, you can't allow this. They have got to become Catholics. They've got to convert totally. They've got to leave those old things behind. And so as the Jesuits began to try to teach that to the people, it produced an explosive reaction and persecution and resulted in vast numbers of those uh, who had been, quote, converted, reverting back to their old ways because they weren't interested in not being what they thought would mean leaving being a Chinese uh, to, to get rid of their ancestor worship. And ultimate persecution resulted in most of the Catholics being either executed or driven out of the country. God wants us to walk in total obedience to Him, absolute submission to His Word. No other beliefs or practices are to be a part of what we do or a part of what we believe. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's very narrow-minded. It's very what the world would call bigoted, but that happens to be the truth. And there is no other way by which a person can attain the kingdom of heaven not by being a good Hindu or a good Buddhist or a good Muslim or anything else. None of the rest will result in salvation. And so God is very, very hard on his people. You know, that would be the view from the outside world. But for us, we know what God is doing. He's demonstrating his love here. He's saying, I love you so much. I don't want you to be hurt. I don't want you to be damned. I don't want you to face judgment. So he's telling them, trust me completely. And do not attempt to manipulate the spirits into doing the will of selfish human beings. You know, that's really what all this is about. Spiritism is about manipulating the spirit so they will do what we want them to do. We want our future to be thus and so, so we manipulate the spirit so that they will be in accord with that. We appease the spirits, or that is the spiritists do. I trust none of us do. God has zero tolerance for spiritism. We use that word a lot nowadays. It's politically correct. Zero tolerance. It's a good phrase, actually. That's the way God is. You know, God, God is not up there just looking down and saying, oh, now, now, they just don't really understand. It's okay. God has zero tolerance for that which is going to damn a human being. And he calls spiritism, as you read in this passage, detestable. And he says in verse 10 that there shall not be found among you anyone who practices the occult in any form. He condemned all these practices because he says they are futile. 
They will not accomplish even what you want to accomplish by it, and they will result in judgment. God is demonstrating fantastic love here. God is not narrow-minded and, and, and trying to, to, to be a killjoy here. He wants them to have joy and peace and hope, and there's only one way they can have that, by trusting Him and being obedient to Him. In his commentary on this passage, Jack Deere says, all these practices are forbidden because they divorce life from morality. Several factors make this clear. First, the future was determined by one's moral behavior, not by magical manipulation. Secondly, using magic to manipulate one's circumstances was in essence a futile attempt to flee from the Lord's ethical laws which promoted life and blessing. Thirdly, the use of magic and divination was a refusal to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And fourthly, the reliance on these practices indicated a corresponding failure to trust the Lord with one's life. You can't trust the Lord with one's life, so you've got to go manipulate the spirits to try to get the future that you want. So blind were those involved in the occult that they would go to the extreme of what this passage mentions of child sacrifice. Wherever it says they made their child walk through the fire, that means they sacrificed the child to a god by virtue of a flaming death. And this was, this was done by many Canaanites. It was done by the Phoenicians. When they were very in extreme straits, the people in power were to bring their child and this child was to be tossed into the flaming hands of the God. It was a gross, heinous crime. The spirits who required this offering were demons. As Paul tells us in Corinthians, the gods of this world are demons. This is clear from the practices that are listed here. For example, the passage mentions divination and the interpretation of omens. These are basically the same practice. A diviner is somebody who tries to determine the future or to discover the, quote, will of the gods through interpretation of some kinds of signs or patterns. For example, he sees a flight of birds going over and he reads in this flight something that the spirits are saying. Or what is, was very commonly practiced by almost all of these, even the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, was hepatoscopy, which was you, take, you sacrifice an animal and you cut him open, you yank out his liver, and then you study the liver. And by patterns of the liver, we're supposed to tell you. I mean, there was something about a liver, I guess, that... One of the practices that's actually mentioned in the Old Testament was the practice of taking arrows, a bunch of arrows, and throwing them on the ground, and then interpreting the pattern of the fallen arrows. Sort of like pickup sticks, you know, only you drop the sticks and you say, well, that means that three weeks from now your brother's going to come or, you know, some other thing like that that you can read from the sticks. Or also the practice of taking a cup of wine and looking into it and, and seeing the pattern of the fluids or of the sediment in the bottom and coming up, you know, kind of like a tea reader idea. Well, you know, the scripture has a lot to say about this. Let me go back to an interesting little passage because you know that Joseph is tongue-in-cheek about this. But in Genesis 44, verse 5, you remember that when uh, his, his brothers came and Benjamin was finally brought, that he told his head butler to put his own silver cup into the bag of 
his brother Benjamin, and then to imply that Benjamin had stolen that cup. Verse 5 says, Is not this the one, the cup, from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? Now, Joseph didn't use the cup for divination, but what he was saying was this was the standard practice of the Egyptians. So the Israelite brothers would not think anything of it. Naturally, that's what they use these cups for. So they would understand that this was not just a silver cup. It was a silver cup used in divination. So it had special meaning, theoretically, to Joseph here. So this helps us understand that this was a widely spread practice at that particular time. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We've read this verse before, but it's, I think, appropriate to this particular study. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, this is after Saul has gone out and uh, had a victory, but not done what the Lord had told him to do, and that's kill the king and wipe out uh, all that he had captured. And Samuel hits him up behind the head and says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as, the iniqu as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Divination implies rejection of the word of the Lord. There's more to it in, than in this passage than that. Obviously, his whole, whole action implies he's rejected the word of the Lord, but what he's drawing in there is the parallel to divination. And someone who is into divination is by nature of practicing that, rejecting the word of the Lord. That's how vile and contemptible the practice is. 2 Kings 21 we read the beginning of the account of one of the most heinous kings in the history of Judah. 2 Kings 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. And he, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft, used divination, and dealt with mediums and spirit, spiritists. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I mean, Manasseh went the whole route. He went the whole route sacrificed his own son, and then moved on through all of these other vile practices, uh, even installing pagan gods in the temple courts. But continue to study the life of Manasseh, and you will find in that story an example of the mercy of God that is beyond almost any other example in Scripture. Because in spite of all of his vileness, that man one day will repent, and God will deliver him. But Israel will still, Judah will still pay the price for having walked in rebellion. We're told in this passage in Deuteronomy also uh, that he was the kings, the people of Israel were to avoid witchcraft, which involves fortune-telling and astrology. You know, the whole idea that you could look at the stars and somehow by looking at the stars and looking the pattern amongst them that that's going to predict the future. I mean, people today in modern America, sophisticated, scientifically oriented, rationalistic America, America, still buy horoscopes and look at those things and say, whoa, you know, the stars are less, thus and so, so next month, you know, my ship's going to come in or whatever. 
I mean, if people, I mean, that's the greatest blindness that can come upon people. It's sort of like believing that Nostradamus somehow could predict the future by simply making generic statements that could be interpreted by, any, by anybody the way they wanted to, to, to be, quote, a fulfilling of this prophecy. And, and, of course, the term sorcerer here, or one who casts spells. The Hebrew word here, uh, which is in, translated, one who casts spells, literally means to tie a magical knot. These are individuals who use black magic. They, they use hexes and talisman to try to control people or circumstances. The Bible has a lot to say about that, too. Let me go back to the seventh chapter of Exodus, verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and, he also, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Then yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them. You see, these magicians can do things that appear to be very real. Satan is not powerless. Satan is a supernatural power. And he can do things which the, the blinded human eye will see as reality. But of course, the, the, kick, the kicker in that passage is Aaron's rod swallowed up all the others. How does one rod converting into a snake eat a bunch of others just like that by the power of God? But they didn't see that. They didn't see that. In Isaiah chapter 2, God's through the prophet makes a powerful statement in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For thou hast abandoned thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. The Israelites had become soothsayers like the Philistines. And so God abandoned them. And the call is... Come, house of Israel, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Which means to reject all those practices of darkness. It's not called black magic for nothing. It has everything to do with the darkness, the dark forces of evil. And then later in the Minor Prophets, one last passage, Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 10, we read, And it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off the sorceries from your hand. You will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will destroy I will root out your Asherim from among you and destroy your cities. I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. I mean, all of this practice here of sorcery and witchcraft and soothsaying is all mixed in together. It's all an expression of darkness and of vileness. Well, I will finish this passage next week because we have one more 
a type to look at, and those are the ones who talk with the dead. And there's some, of course, powerful examples from Scripture of that and of the reality of what it appears at least to be talking with the dead. 